You know what's wrong with religion? It makes you feel bad about yourself. Here you are, trying to do a good thing, trying to do a good job, and then you realize you're not doing as good as you thought. It feels horrible. I would probably name this feeling as shame, realizing that you're not as good as you thought you were, aware of your failures. I've come to realize just this week that people feel shame around me. I had two incidents happen this week that are almost identical. I was telling my son that I was going to relay these stories. I was going to talk about shame, and he said to me, I have seen people respond to you this way. And this is what it looks like. These good dads with their children saw them out on the busyness of town, and both of them, when they saw me, looked threatened. There was this face that was like, please don't see me. I know you see me. I'm actually looking at you in the eyes, and I want you to not notice me. And I want to say hi, which only makes it worse. Please don't even act happy to see me. One father happened to engage me in conversation. We were in too close a proximity for him to escape. There were three walls around him. He was kind of in a corner. And then I approached him, and I said, hi, I'm so glad to see you. And he said, we haven't been to church in a long time. I said, I know, it's okay, it's okay, I know. I know this about you, it's all right, you're going to come. He's like, we've been meaning to, I said, I know you have, and you are, you will. I'm so glad to see you, we've missed you, how are you? I'm fine, but it's been really busy, and we just haven't had, I know, I know, I know. I thought, oh my gosh, what in the world am I supposed to do? Here I am out there, what am I supposed to do with people, like not see them? That seems kind of cruel. I like you. I missed you. Can I say that? Or does that like add guilt upon guilt? Golly, what am I supposed to do in this situation? <laughs> Too bad they ever came to church. If they had never come to church, then maybe they wouldn't feel bad seeing me, right? Then they'd just be like, oh, hello. I don't know. This is the problem. This is the pickle. This is the quandary. And here we have in our gospel lesson today the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming down the hill and John the Baptist yells at them while they're even approaching. Calls them a name from the very start. You brood of vipers! Who warned you? Oh my gosh, are we having a conversation? I didn't know we were having a conversation. Brian McLaren in his book, We Make the Road by Walking, says this about prophets. Prophets in the Bible have a fascinating role as custodians of the best hopes, desires, and dreams of their society. They challenge people to act in ways consistent with those hopes, desires, and dreams. And when they see people behaving in harmful ways, they warn them by picturing the future to which that harmful behavior will lead. I'm not John the Baptist. But I know, I recognize, that I do often act as a custodian of the best hopes, desires, and dreams of our society. And I do challenge you, I recognize that, I do challenge you to act in ways consistent with those hopes, desires, and dreams. And I know, I know that when I see you acting in harmful ways, I warn you, I do, I know, I say that. John the Baptist was telling the Pharisees that they needed to be willing to lay down all of it in order to receive the message of Jesus. 
As he saw them approaching, he yelled out to them and said, If you want to change, but you want to do it while also not changing, you're going to find this message of Jesus problematic. Of course, they end up being defensive and would consistently be that way, not open to the goodness that Jesus had to proclaim. They were too busy holding on to what they knew and what they, how they thought it should happen. But we recognize, don't we, what it is that people want? Oh my goodness, I know what you want. You've told me. You actually told me. And we hear it in the scriptures from all time. We want what we hear in Isaiah, from the prophet Isaiah, who talks about the lion and the lamb laying down together. Yeah, that's the way we want. Then it requires a new imagination of how we're going to get there, a new imagination of how God is going to bring this about. We, too, need a new imagination which includes God's activity in our reality. For so long, we have fallen into relying on our own strength and determination. And we're not alone. This is just how people are. They've always been this way, and that's us too. And this is the problem with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You see, they were quite certain as to how God would bring about God's new kingdom. They came out because they'd been waiting for it. They remembered the reign of King David and said, that's it, like that. That's how the new kingdom should look like the old kingdom looked. And they remembered their heritage as children of Abraham and said, see, this is who belongs in the kingdom. We know what we're looking for. And thus, this is why John the Baptist is angry with them, just in looking at them. He knows that they're holding fast to how it's always been. When I think about this psychologically, this dialogue between John the Baptist and the Pharisees and Sadducees, I recognize that this is a mess. Isn't this a mess? How can the prophet, in this case John the Baptist, bring to people's attention that they're actually their own worst enemy in their efforts to realize God's kingdom on earth? How can he use religion to point out the errors of their religious practice? Baptism for repentance was a Jewish practice. John the Baptist didn't make this up. And so in their coming, he is wanting to reimagine something that's very familiar, and he's calling them out on it. To bring it home to this week in Ridgefield, I want to say, how can I say to these fathers who are feeling badly that they haven't been to church and thus wonder if and when they should ever try to return, that God knows their imperfection. Yeah, I know, you haven't been. That's all right, I, we already know. God already knows. Now, I'm telling you this here today in church. I didn't say it to them on Main Street. Do I just tell them that on the sidewalk? Because they're not in here today to hear it. How will they know? How is it that we remember that God knows our imperfections? The good news in Jesus is that God knows our imperfections and that God's love embraces our imperfections. In the podcast, The Cosmic We, co-hosts Dr. Barbara Holmes and Dr. Donnie Bryant interviewed Father Richard Rohr on the topic of reimagining divine love. Father Richard said these words, divine love includes imperfection which is what makes it divine love. Human love seeks to cast out imperfection. Again, he says, God's love is infinite. 
The divine notion of perfection is not the exclusion of imperfection, but the inclusion of imperfection. Human love thinks that you have to exclude imperfection to love a person. Again, he says, divine love includes imperfection, which is what makes it divine love. We, we can't do that. We seem to pay attention to the imperfection. I think about this even in our Collect for Purity, which we pray every single Sunday. It's been prayed for centuries, this prayer, all the time, every single Sunday. Gathering for worship for centuries, this Collect for Purity has been prayed. And we hear this sentence, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you. And if we read it with our human love, we can say, Jesus, wash away the imperfections. But if we hear it with divine love, we see that the imperfections become cleansed. In love, all of us becomes cleansed. We can't do it. Only God can do it. And this opening prayer says, you know. All hearts are open and all desires are known and from you no secrets are hid. Do we hear that? Yes, even our imperfections. So John the Baptist says to the Pharisees and Sadducees, bear fruit worthy of repentance. Begin to live into the newness that God is preparing for us. The Pharisees, in contrast, they want to come and be a part of this new kingdom, but they had very specific guidelines and expectations of what this new kingdom would be like. They knew which imperfections need to be excluded and which ones could be included. That's what they debate with Jesus on over and over in his years in ministry. Jesus says, it's all in. I eat with sinners and outcasts. We fail at allowing the divine love to move through us. And the more that we become aware of God's goodness in Jesus, the more stark to us our failure is. And interestingly enough, like these fathers in town, our shame can cause us to withdraw from the very refining fire that we actually desire. We want to be made new, and we realize we can't do it. God says through Jesus, please bring me everything. What if John the Baptist had let his unworthiness keep him from coming into Jesus' presence? He mentions it here in our gospel lesson today. He says, I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals. Golly, that seems like the lowest job there is. And if you remember what follows when Jesus comes to the River Jordan to be baptized, and we're not going to read it here in these next couple weeks, but he says to Jesus, you want me to baptize you? Nuh-uh, you should, you should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, I need you to do this. And so John the Baptist, in his imperfection, says, okay. I don't even know really what I'm doing, and I know I'm really not equipped to do it, but you have asked me to come in my full humanity into this moment, and I will follow your direction. And we need that, because it's when Jesus is baptized that we hear God's words to Jesus. This is my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. And this means something to Jesus because he hears it too which fortifies him as he knows that people have witnessed it and he goes out into the wilderness to prepare himself for the service that he will do to the living God in his full humanity, which includes imperfections, even in his full divinity. 
We are unpracticed on allowing God to see our imperfections. I'm going to guess this because even just my presence on Main Street with both of these fathers demonstrated it to me. They looked at me like, don't point it out. I'm trying. Sometimes I mess up. And I want to say loudly to them across the distance, I already know. I want to say that to you all, I already know. People are people, they've always been people. You are not doing anything new. The sins you have, yep, they did too. Back there, that person over there, same one. Your shameful acts are not new news to me. And so I want to say, please, please will you come into this space so that God can do with your imperfections what God will do with them. I don't have an agenda with them. It's only God who can heal and restore us. A song came to my mind when I was preparing for this. I'm not going to sing it because I, I just can't bring to you the experience of it. Um, but a song came to my mind when I was preparing this homily, which I heard when I was between the ages of 12 and 14. I know it because of where we lived at the time. This is the advantage of moving a lot in your life. You, you can say, oh, it was in that church, and that's when we were there. So I couldn't have been any older than the end of ninth grade. I'm pretty sure we were having a revival, and maybe I know the words because I heard her rehearse the song or something. I can't imagine that after one hearing they would have stuck with me, but I can still sing the song. And the song is from the perspective of Mary Magdalene, who you know was brought before Jesus from some righteous, by some righteous people who wanted to stone her because of her adultery. And if you recall, Jesus does an amazing thing. He just draws a line in the sand and says to them, he who is without sin, cast the first stone. And if you remember the story, they slowly walk away. And so this song is Mary Magdalene's reflection when they're gone. And Jesus says to her, who condemns you? And she says, I don't see anyone. And he said, neither do I. Your sins are forgiven. The words of this song are this. How can I repay you? How can I express to you my gratitude? She's singing to Jesus. Remember our first meeting? The crowds, the stones, the cheating, the disgraceful mood? But you were so unbending, so calm and self-assured amidst the noisy rush. I looked into your eyes, you looked into my heart, and brought a quiet hush. The chorus is, now I've been born again. I've never been the same since then because of you. My dignity's restored. Some say you are the Lord. I know it's really true. As long as I have life and breath, I won't forget the moment when you touched my soul and light came bursting through. There's no way to repay. There's nothing I can say. I give my life to you. We want this. I want this for you. I know you want that. When we bring our whole selves 
imperfections at all, into the transforming love of Jesus, the world gets changed. All of our lives become worship. Our lives, all of it, becomes worship. And the words of Isaiah become real. Episcopal priest Nantombi Naomi Tutu tells of an experience at St. Thomas Kagiso, South Africa. She writes, the rector at the time, Zolani Dwalti, told us, we do not do outreach. Everything we do is worship. This congregation, she said, comprised of predominantly poor families, fed lunch to children in the neighborhood school, bought school books, shoes, and uniforms for children in the community, stood as guardians for families of child-headed households, and made sure that those dying from AIDS had their homes cleaned, were eating healthy food, and knew they were loved. There was no fancy church sanctuary, no glamorous life for the rector, just worship of God that showed through their caring what Christianity is all about. And this is John the Baptist's request, expectation, point when he speaks to the Pharisees Pharisees and Sadducees, bear fruit worthy of repentance, and it's the words to us as well. And we can only do that when we bring to Jesus our imperfections, along with our imperfections, but all of it, so that God's love can have its way with us. What the prophet Isaiah is calling us to, naming for us, is actually what God wants to. This vision that the prophet Isaiah speaks is actually what God envisions for all God's creation. And we say, I want that. God said, me too. Let's work together on that. So my friends, I'm not going to yell at you. Not even if I see you on Main Street. Please tell the people that haven't been here a while, I'm not going to yell at them either. But I'm going to plead with you. Keep coming into this space with your imperfections. Practice laying them down when you walk into this space and move through the liturgy, through the word and sacrament. Let God have God's way with you, please for the sake of us all. Amen.